COVID and its fallout have made the economy weird, y'all, and you can see it all over Houston. Every business seems to have a Help Wanted sign out front. Shelves are empty, and repairs can't be done without the parts. Today, CityCast producer Farrell Gibbs gets up close and tells us how this is all playing out at Molina's, one of Houston's oldest Tex-Mex restaurants. And for the big picture, we're joined by business writer and consultant Lauren Steffi. What is going on with the economy? It's Monday, December 20th, 2021. I'm Lisa Gray, and this is CityCast Houston. Farrell, Lauren, thanks for being here. Farrell, what are you seeing out in Houston? Yeah, last week I spoke with Ricardo Molina of Molina's Cantina. They recently celebrated their 80th year in business. And Ricardo is one of the brothers who runs it. And he said that in all of his years there, he has never had so much trouble hiring staff. Here's a little bit of our conversation. Oh, yeah, it's never been like this. This store we opened in Fulshire right at the beginning of COVID. We've never been fully staffed at this new location. With the turnover, nobody walking through the door, and you look behind your cook line, and you have five or six, and you've got three, and two of them are your manager. And you go, boy, this is real. He said that's what it's come to. He said that he and his brothers, the owners, have to fill in themselves sometimes. But we haven't closed. We have not closed. We'll borrow. I mean, we're here ourselves every day, seven days a week. Cooking, washing dishes, cleaning tables, whatever it takes. We got to keep the ball rolling. I'm not going to close. Lauren, is that what's happening all over the place? It's not just this one Tex-Mex restaurant? No, it's not. It's not just Houston. It's not just Texas. It's the whole country. We've seen this. You've had a lot more job openings than you have had applicants. Everybody says, well, you are not paying our workers enough. Well, actually, average worker wages have gone up about 5% in the last year. So, Employers are responding by raising wages, but I think that there's a psychological aspect to what's going on here, and that is that a lot of people have used the pandemic to sort of stop and reassess what they want to do. And a lot of things like restaurant jobs are more the type of work that people have to take. Most people don't want to be a dishwasher or a waiter or a cook. Some exceptions to that, but I think that a lot of people take those jobs because they see it as a stepping stone to something else. And the pandemic has sort of short-circuited that process. So how can they afford not to do that? I think of most people who are taking those low-level jobs as busboys or whatever, needing money for groceries and rent. So how can you not take the job? Part of it is the pandemic has reset that as well, right? I mean, we've come out of a year and a half or so where people in many cases couldn't go out. They couldn't spend money the way they normally do. Savings rates have, have increased dramatically during the pandemic. In addition to that, you had three rounds of government stimulus. If you're a dishwasher and you get a $1,500 windfall from the government, that makes you stop and think like, hey, maybe I could take a couple of months and figure out if I can get this record deal going or whatever, <laughs> right? And it causes a lot of people to start stop and think about, well, now that I have a little bit of a cushion, what do I really want to do? Oh, so you think we're going to see a lot more tiny businesses popping up? No, we we already are. You're seeing a a huge rise in entrepreneurship. The Small Business Administration has put out some stats on really a record year for business startups and things like that. And I think that's going to continue. Lauren, I imagine immigration 
has some part to play in all of this. I understand you know a lot about immigration. I know you're one of the hosts of Rational Middle, which is a podcast about immigration. How is it affecting this? You know, the pandemic has actually put a spotlight on immigration in a lot of ways, because what we found is that, especially the undocumented, who, of course, are national policies, we just don't talk about them. <laughs> uh, we, we depend on them, but we don't talk about them. And it's kind of brought that dependence into the forefront because we've seen that in a lot of industries like healthcare, food processing, and construction, these undocumented workers are critical to keeping the supply chains moving and that sort of thing. And in many cases, when they've gotten sick, they don't have insurance. They just simply can't work. They don't show up or whatever. And so it's caused a lot of problems. If you remember, in the teeth of the pandemic, we had empty store shelves. And mm -hmm. for a while, we were running short on chicken. And then we were running short on beef. And that was all a direct result of the fact that the processing plants couldn't keep workers healthy and couldn't keep people in their jobs. Yeah, I think we've seen, in a way that we haven't before, how vital immigration is to the health of our economy. And you would think that it would make our politicians want to address this so that we could come up with a more viable uh, immigration system since it hasn't been updated in 40 years, but that hasn't happened. I think of Houston business as being basically pro-immigration. Most Houston businesses are very pro-immigration. Most of them understand the economic importance of a vibrant immigration system. But it is such a politically charged field that, that very few of them, and it's one big exception, uh, my, my co-author Stan Merrick, but very, <laughs> very few bus Houston business owners other than Stan have been willing to stand up and, and speak out about it. Yeah. So that is bringing us to the supply chain issues. Farrell, what were you hearing at Molina's? Are they seeing supply chain troubles? They are, unfortunately. And what's surprising to them is it's items that they've always been able to get that are standard like stockpots, 10-gallon stockpots. They can't get those. They're on back order. Here's Ricardo Molina a little bit more on that. Monday, our main grocery supplier will spend a list of things that are out, you know, probably four or five different things. A company had 20 American cheeses in stock when this thing first hit. When they start bringing it back, they're not bringing back 20 items. They may bring back five. He says that's affecting the customers. The forks y'all use are not in stock. They're out of stock. The plates you use are out of stock. It's just all the time you're having to scramble. And we got so spoiled with our wonderful supply chain in the United States. You just punch it in or call it up and it arrives the next day. And that's been the challenge for us, you know? Yeah, we're seeing that nationwide and in some cases worldwide. This is actually a global issue, but certainly here in the United States, this is kind of an unprecedented economic situation. I mean, there's some similarity to, you know, what happened immediately after World War II. Basically, demand has been shut down for a year and a half or so because of the pandemic. And now things have opened back up. You've had this massive surge in demand and we don't have enough supply to keep up with it. Companies across the board are struggling to get raw materials. They're struggling to find people. They're struggling to get assembled goods that they need to produce things. And so it's really kind of unprecedented. And it's part of the reason, if you remember, early in the year, we had a lot of predictions. Oh, inflation, it's a momentary blip. It's going to be back down to 2.5%. Well, we're still above 6%. And that's been pretty persistent over the course of the year. Okay, so back up, because it's been a long time since I took Econ 101. <laughs> How are shortages related to inflation? Well, so when there's fewer products, mm -hmm. they are more in demand and people are willing to pay more for yeah. them. So prices go up. 
Okay, I got it. It's kind of like if you want a rare book, you're going to pay more for it than you will if you go to Amazon and buy the latest paperback, right? So, Lauren, if I'm Ricardo Molina and my restaurant needs drinking glasses and all the other restaurant owners are trying to get drinking glasses, the prices for glasses go up? Prices for glasses go up because the people who make the glasses are having a hard time getting the raw materials. So those are costing them more. It's costing more to transport goods because there are fewer trucks and fewer truckers on the roads. And they may not be able to get people in the glass factory to actually make the glasses. And they're basically having to cut their production. And so this just adds cost in all along the chain. And it ultimately ends up with you and I when we pay that tab at the the dinner table. So my enchilada plate is going to cost more. Exactly. I should expect that. Exactly. Oh, man. Okay, so how else would everyday Houston people see that? What sort of things are affecting consumers? I actually stepped right into the middle of this without intending to. My wife and I decided last spring we were going to get a hot tub, and we were going to have a hot tub installed. And it turns out that hot tubs are like the poster child for supply chain disruptions. There was a front page (laughs) Wall Street Journal story about how Every aspect of the hot tub, just the process of assembling them, you know, touches all of these different supply chain issues, right? The motors come from Asia and they're stuck on boats in Los Angeles Harbor. If you need the polyethylene to make the interiors, well, the winter storm caused a gas shortage that affected polyethylene production. Right here in Houston. Right. So everything about it has been affected. And so it was supposed to be delivered in April. They're now saying hopefully it will be here in January, but... No promises. (laughs) And by then, hot tub season will almost be over, right? This is Texas. You only get a couple of days. (laughs) And winter hasn't even started yet. (laughs) I don't know. We had that one cold day where we almost got down to freezing. I think that might have been winter. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It came in February last year. So maybe you'll have your hot tub in time for another power loss. (laughs) But then we won't have have the power to use it, right? Right. Lauren, what do you think happens next with Houston's economy and businesses like Molina's? I just think that it's a really unprecedented time. And and I I think a lot about how we're going to come out the other end of this. And I think that it's forcing a lot of companies to rethink their own work environments, how they make work appealing to people. Uh, I think young people, especially those who have been through the financial crisis of 2008 and now through this, are looking at jobs and careers in a very different way than we did. And so I think there's going to be a psychological reassessment of work. So how do you mean? How did we look at it when you and I were like graduating in the 80s and 90s? And how are millennials looking at it? We came out of school in Reagan's America, and it was all about produce, 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 right? And we went out, and we got jobs, and we worked really hard, and and we ignored our kids. And And our parents were still disappointed in us. And our parents were still disappointed in us. And it was all about getting ahead, making money. And I think for kids today, that is less of an emphasis. They're more about work-life balance. They want greater flexibility. More people are working from home now, and they Not all of them like it, but a lot of them do. I first started working from home in the early 90s, and I have been a big fan. (laughs) So I feel like I was kind of ahead of the curve on that one. But a lot of other people, you know, people want the flexibility. They want to be able to live where they want and not necessarily be tied to a, a particular place because of a job. And so I think companies are going to have to figure all this out. And that has all kinds of implications. What does it mean for the real estate market in downtown Houston, for example, if all the companies only need half the office space that they currently have? They may have more employees than ever, but they may need less office space. What does that mean for the real estate market? What does that mean for the construction market? You can see how all this stuff could play out over a period of years, and we could wind up in a, with a very different type of economy than what we have right now. Oh, yeah. 
The other thing that I think is going to happen when we look at all these supply chain things, it's caused a lot of companies to rethink globalization. Do I really want to be beholden on plants in China to make my widgets when I don't know what the Chinese government's going to do if there's a public health crisis? You've seen a lot of companies, uh, automakers, for example, have decided to bring a lot of their chip design and, and manufacturing back to the U.S. because they're worried about being able to get chips for, they all want to roll out electric vehicles and you need a lot of computer chips to do that and they can't get them right now. So they don't want to be at the mercy of these kind of international things they can't really control. Yeah. And so I think you're going to see a lot more manufacturing type jobs coming back to America. We, we've already seen that to some extent in Houston with natural gas, because when the fracking boom made natural gas cheap and abundant, mm -hmm. petrochemical companies in particular, plastics makers and things like that brought a lot more of their manufacturing back to the Gulf Coast. I think that trend is going to play out now on a much broader scale. Uh, we're going to start making more things here in America than we have in a while. Yeah. And Houston is a place where people make things. They're big factories in my part of town. They're giant pipes. Houston's always been a place where people make things and they do things. They don't talk about things. That's <laughs> one of the great things about Houston. So this is the upside for our economy. It's a city of doers. All right. Thanks a lot, Lauren. Farrell, let's talk about some news in Houston. What else is going on out in the city? Well, if you wanted to put a face on this latest uptick in COVID, there was a tweet that came out right before the weekend by Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner. I tested positive, the tweet said. There's no question in my mind that because of the vaccine and booster, my symptoms have been mild. Wait, wait. So Sylvester Turner, mayor of Houston, has COVID. That's correct. Wow. He thought he had a sinus infection uh -huh. or sinus issues and then decided to get tested. And sure enough, yes, he came down with it. And what's more, he had the vaccine and the booster. So he's going to isolate for 10 days. That's till the 27th. So what is he recommending that Houstonians do? To do like he did and to get the vaccine and the booster. And to get tested. And to get tested. That's right. That's all for today. If you don't already subscribe to the newsletter, sign up for it. It's at houston.citycast.fm. We'll be back tomorrow. See you then. Bye. All right. Woo, 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 woo. I am so energetic. Woo. It's going to be so punchy. All right. I'm in my intro self. Woo.